Lesson 2 for April 1 through to 7, An Inheritance Incorruptible. Sabbath afternoon, April 1. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that come from the books 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And as we explore them over these few weeks, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us, that we may be open to the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we may understand your truth for us and for those about us. Help us as we share what we know, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. Let's read that again, First Peter 1 and verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Whenever one studies the Bible, particularly focusing on one book or even a section of a book, a few questions need to be answered, if possible. First, It would be good to know who the intended audience was. Second, perhaps even more important, it would be good to know what the precise reason for the writing was. What was the particular issue, if any, that the author wanted to address, such as Paul's writing to the Galatians in regard to the theological errors being taught about salvation and the law? As we know, much of the New Testament was written as epistles or letters. And people usually write letters in order to convey specific messages to the recipients. In other words, as we read Peter, it would be good to know as much as possible the historical context of this letter. What was he saying? And why? And of course, most important of all, what message can we, to whom under inspiration it was written as well, take from it? And as we will soon see... Even in the first few verses, Peter has a lot of important truth to reveal to us today, centuries removed from when he wrote. Sunday, April 2. To the Exiles. If you were given a piece of paper that began, Dear Sir, you would realise that you were reading a letter, and you would assume that the letter came from somebody you probably weren't close to. Just as modern letters have a standard way to begin, so do ancient letters. First Peter begins as an ancient letter would. It identifies the author and those to whom it was sent. Question. Read First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. What can we learn from this one verse that helps to give us a bit of context? First Peter 1 verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Peter clearly identifies himself. His name is the first word in the letter, yet he immediately defines himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Thus, as Paul often did in Galatians and Romans and Ephesians, 
Peter right away establishes his credentials, emphasizing his divine calling. Uh, Paul gives his introduction in Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. And Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. He was an apostle, that is, one sent, and the one who sent him was the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter identifies a region where this letter was directed, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all regions in Asia Minor, roughly equivalent to the part of modern Turkey east of the Bosporus. Debate exists about whether Peter was writing mostly to Jewish believers or to Gentile believers. The terms Peter used in 1 Peter 1.1, sojourners or exiles, and dispersion or the diaspora, are terms that naturally belong to Jews living outside of the Holy Land in the first century. The words chosen and sanctified in 1 Peter 1-2 are suited to both Jews and Christians alike. Uh, let's read 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Describing those outside of the community as Gentiles, in 1 Peter 2.12 and chapter 4 verse 3, also underlines the Jewish character of those to whom Peter writes. So 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 reads, Having your conduct honourable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And chapter 4 and verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past time in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Some commentators argue in response that what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.18, which is, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, and 4 verse 3, which I just read a moment ago, would be more appropriately said to Gentile converts to Christianity than to Jewish ones. After all, would Peter really have written to Jews about the futile ways inherited from your ancestors? Or would he have said to Jewish readers, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries? What's more crucial to us, though, isn't so much who the audience was, but rather what the message says.
Monday, April 3. Elected. Question. Read 1 Peter 1, verse 2. What else does this tell us about those to whom Peter had been writing? What does he call them? 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Whether writing to specifically Jewish or Gentile believers, Peter was sure about one thing. They were, as he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here, though, one needs to be careful. This does not mean that God predestines some people to be saved and some to be lost, and, as good fortune would have it, the ones Peter was writing to happened to be some of those chosen or elected by God for salvation, while others were chosen by God to be lost. That's not what the Bible teaches. Question. Read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, 2 Peter 3, 9, John 3, 16, Ezekiel 33, 13. How do these verses help us to understand what Peter meant when he called these people the elect? First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. And second Peter three and verse nine The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Scripture makes it clear that it was God's plan for everyone to be saved a plan instituted in their behalf even before the creation of the earth. As it says in Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. All are elect in the sense that God's original purpose was for everyone to be saved and no one to be lost. He predestined all humanity for eternal life. This means that the plan of salvation was adequate for everyone to be included in the atonement, even if not everyone would accept what that atonement offered him or her. God's foreknowledge of the elect is simply his knowing beforehand what their free choice would be in regard to salvation. This foreknowledge in no way forced their choice any more than a mother knowing beforehand that her child will choose chocolate cake instead of green beans meant that her foreknowledge of the choice forced the child to make it. So to finish today, what kind of assurance can you get from the encouraging truth that God has chosen you to be saved? Tuesday, April 4, 
Key Themes Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. What is Peter's main message in these verses? 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love." Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us that were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. In his greetings to his readers in 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2, Peter already has mentioned the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The three members of the Godhead form the subject of 1 Peter 1, 3-12. The Father and the Son are the topic of verses 3-9, to and the Holy Spirit is prominent in 10-12. As he writes about the Father and Son and the work of the Holy Spirit, Peter introduces many of the themes that he will come back to. Christians, Peter begins in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, and also John 3, 7, have been born anew. We've read verse 3. Now let's look at John 3, verse 7. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Their whole lives have been transformed by Jesus' resurrection and the extraordinary inheritance that awaits Christians in heaven, as he said in verses 3 and 4. Here, as in so many other places in the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is key to the Christian hope. This hope gives Christians a reason to rejoice, despite the fact that many of those reading First Peter are suffering. This suffering tests and refines their faith, just as fire tests and refines gold. Even though Peter's readers have not seen Jesus during his earthly ministry, they love him and believe in him, and the outcome of their faith in him is salvation and the promise of, as it says in verse 4, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter also lets them know that the prophets of old had predicted the grace that would come to you, in verse 10. The prophets of the Old Testament inquired and searched, verse 10 says too, about the salvation that these people were now experiencing in Jesus. 
as they suffer persecution for their faith. Peter points out that they are part of a much wider conflict between good and evil. In the end, he is seeking to help them stay faithful to the truth, even amid trials. And so, to finish today, 1 Peter 1.4 says that there is an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. Think about that on a personal level. There is a specific place reserved in heaven just for you personally. Then, how should you personally respond to this wonderful promise? Wednesday, April 5, Living the Life of Salvation Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through to 21. According to this passage, what should motivate Christian behaviour? 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who, through him, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The word therefore, which begins 1 Peter 1.13, shows that what Peter will say next grows out of what is just said. As we saw in yesterday's study, Peter just had been talking about the grace of God and the hope that Christians have in Jesus Christ. As a result of this grace and hope, Peter urges his readers to gird up the loins of your mind. That is, as a response to the salvation that they have in Jesus, they must prepare their minds in order to stand firm and be faithful. Question. Read 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. What does it mean to rest your hope fully upon the grace revealed in Jesus? 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. No question. Peter tells them their hope rests only in Jesus. But he then emphasises that a certain level of behaviour is expected from Christians as a consequence of their salvation. He notes three of the great motivations that lie behind Christian behaviour. The character of God, verses 15 and 16, the coming judgment, verse 17, and the cost of redemption, verses 17 to 21. The first thing that will motivate Christian behaviour is the character of God. 
This character can be summed up this way. God is holy. Peter quotes from Leviticus chapter eleven forty four and 45 when he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That was in 1 Peter one sixteen. Therefore, those who follow Jesus must also be holy. A second motivation for Christian behaviour is found in the realisation that God who is holy will judge everyone impartially according to what each has done. And third motivation that we find arises from the great truth that Christians are redeemed. This means that they have been bought with a price, a very high price, the precious blood of Christ as expressed in verse 19. Peter emphasises that the death of Jesus was not an accident of history, but something established before the foundation of the world. And so to finish the day, what motivates you to be a Christian? What would you answer, and why, if someone asked you, why are you a Christian? Bring your answers to class on Sabbath. Thursday, April 6, Love One Another Peter next steers Christians to the ultimate expression of what living a holy and faithful life will be like. Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through to 25. What crucial point is he making here about what it means to be a Christian? 1 Peter 1 verse 22 Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which, by the gospel, was preached to you. Peter's starting point is that Christians are already purified. Seeing ye have purified, he said, and are living in obedience to the truth, in verse 22. The verb purify or cleanse is closely related to the words holy and holiness, which link back to what Peter wrote a few verses earlier in verse 15. Through their commitment to Jesus and through their baptism, Christians have purified themselves by setting themselves aside for God, and they do this by obeying the truth, as we read in 1 Peter three twenty-one to 22 There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. This change in their lives results in another change. They now find themselves in a close relationship with others who share a similar world view. These relationships are so close that Peter uses the language of family to describe them. Christians are to act out of brotherly and sisterly love. 
The Greek word Philadelphia used in 1 Peter 1.22 when he talks about the love of the brethren means literally love of brother or sister. It is the love that families have for one another. There are several different words in Greek that are translated love. Philia, that's P-H-I-L-I-A, is friendship. Eros, E-R-O-S, the passionate love of a husband and a wife. Agape, a pure love that seeks the good of the other. The word Peter uses when he writes love one another fervently in verse 22 is linked to agape, which usually means the pure love that seeks the good of others. That's certainly why he added the phrase to love one another with a pure heart in verse 22. The kind of heart that comes from being born again, he said in verse 23 through the incorruptible word of God. 1 Peter 1.3 also mentioned that Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This kind of love comes only from God. It's not what a selfish, self-centred, unregenerate heart will manifest, which is surely why Peter puts such an emphasis on being purified and on obeying the truth, as he said in verse 22. The truth is not just something believed, it must be lived. And so to finish today, how can we learn to be more loving? What choices must we make in order to be able to manifest the kind of love that comes from a pure heart? Friday, April 7. It's amazing how rich and deep this first chapter of Peter is, and how much ground it covers. Peter begins his epistle with a meditation on the character of the Godhead, bringing in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father has provided a Saviour in His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are elected in Him for sanctification and obedience. We come to love Jesus, and in Him we rejoice with exalted joy, because through His death and resurrection we have the promise of an inheritance incorruptible in heaven. Even amid trials, then, we can rejoice greatly in the salvation offered to us in Christ. As Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 517, his, that's Peter's letters, were the means of reviving the courage and strengthening the faith of those who were enduring trial and affliction, and of renewing to good works those who through manifold temptations were in danger of losing their hold upon God. End of quote. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit worked through the prophets to describe the days in which Peter and his readers live. As a consequence, Christians should live holy lives, filled with the obedience to the truth, in communities that are characterised by the kind of love that comes from a pure heart. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week. There are four of them. In class, go over your answers to the questions at the end of Wednesday's study. What motivates us to be Christians? What do your answers share in common? How do they diverge? 
Question 2. Twice in this first chapter in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 21, Peter brought up the resurrection of Jesus. What is it about the resurrection that is so crucial to our faith? And third question. Peter talked about an inheritance incorruptible. A bit like what Daniel said in Daniel 7, verse 18. What does it mean? Think about all the things in this world and this life that fade away or that can be destroyed instantly. What shall this tell us about how wonderful our promised inheritance really is? And four, how can our faith grow amid trials? That is, what choices can we make to help us to learn from the things we suffer? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled The Cancelled Funeral, Part 2. Everyone in the room heard one Ojo sneeze, too, and they ran outside terrified. I continued praying, and one Ojo opened her eyes. She struggled to free herself from the ropes that bound her. I called her brother to come and untie the burial ropes. When her brother saw one Ojo struggling, he began shaking with fear but I urged him to untie his sister. When she was freed, he helped her to a chair. The mourners who had fled now crowded around the doorway and windows to see the dead girl who was now alive. One Ojo asked for food, and someone brought it to her. Soon her strength returned, and we praised God together. Then I told the family that God had healed their daughter in answer to prayer, but that God was not willing to share his glory with witchcraft. I warned them not to put herbs on one ojo according to their custom, for this is a form of witchcraft, and it would not please God. The girl's mother and brother nodded in agreement. It was dark, and when I left, I returned to my room. My legs were shaking, and I felt weak and exhausted. I knelt down and prayed, God, today my Thomas prayer has been answered. I believe. Use me as you will. I'm yours. Then I fell into bed and slept soundly. About one o'clock in the morning, a loud knock on my door woke me. Pastor Larry, come, a woman's voice begged. I opened the door and found one Ojo's mother standing there. Come, she begged. One Ojo is dead again. How can that be, I asked. God's power never fails. I hurried with her to where one Ojo lay on her bed. I checked her pulse and her breathing. She was dead again. As I knelt down beside her, I smelled the witch doctor's herbs that someone had spread on her body. Who put those herbs on her body, I asked. One Ojo's mother said that her husband must have done it, for he was the only other person in the house. God raised her from the dead, I said, and he deserves the glory for her resurrection. But someone has dishonoured God and applied these herbs to her, and now she is dead again. I turned and prayed as the family waited silently. A few minutes later, one Ojo opened her eyes and sat up. I stayed with her a few minutes. Then before I returned home, I warned the family again not to allow anyone to touch her body with the witch doctor's herbs. Her mother and brother nodded vigorously. Then I went home and fell into bed, exhausted. 
And this story continues next week in Inside Story. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Hope Channel.